Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Mabin, and today I'm joined by Maya Migdashi. Maya is an interdisciplinary scholar of the state based at Rutgers. She's trained as an anthropologist. She has a background in media. She's produced various documentaries and films. She's written extensively. She's done some fascinating work around all manner of things pertaining to Lebanon, sectarianism, and difference. Perhaps most notably in the case of her wonderful book, Sectarianism, Sovereignty, Secularism and the State in Lebanon, published by Stanford last year, almost a year ago. It's a real pleasure to have Maya with us today after she gave a fascinating keynote lecture at our conference last year, just a few months ago. Maya, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Simon. Uh, I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you. Likewise. And uh, I will start by saying a huge thank you to you for your wonderful keynote lecture at our conference. Um, it was a, a really insightful reflection on your magnificent book, Sextarianism. And uh, it was really wonderful having you in Lancaster, engaging with us and all of the participants. And... Um, just wanted to, to put that on the record and say a big thank you to you for, for your time with that and for joining us today. So, Maya, um, tell us a little bit, please, about what got you interested in in the state and politics and the politics of difference and, and the academy, please. Uh, well, let me start by also thanking you for inviting me uh, to the conference. I'm looking forward to uh, having a closer relationship with uh, Sipad and uh, all the amazing people that I met. And I think it's really, um, you know, I think we're in an exciting time in our, in our field uh, and in the question of uh, political difference and sectarian difference being sort of one articulation of that form of difference. And uh, so I really had fun. So oh, thank you. Thank you. That's amazing that you had fun at an academic conference. And <laughs> I, I think it's wonderful that, um, that we are able to do this and, and continue this relationship. Sorry, I've just completely interrupted you. No, that's fine. Uh, you know, I got interested in the state, in the study of the state. Uh, I think it's, it, it, my interest has kind of... Um, origins in uh, sort of intellectual interests, but also personal experiences. Uh, I grew up during the Lebanese Civil War. So I think uh, since then, I've been sort of ac acutely aware of uh, the state and how it operates and how it doesn't operate. And at the same time, sort of living through uh, you know, different kind of, um, I would say, ruptures in history from the vantage point of Lebanon and in Lebanon um, spurred my interest in the question of power, state, mm -hmm. uh, sovereignty, uh, because it's kind of unavoidable yeah. in some ways. This is not um, just an intellectual topic for many people. For me, uh, I became most, this kind of crystallized when I went to Iraq in 2003, and uh, I was working on a film called About Baghdad, 
which I co-directed. And the sort of debate on sovereignty that had been had around the Iraq war and the invasion and occupation of Iraq was uh, really kind of, I think, changed in some way. This trip to Iraq really kind of changed my life course uh, towards thinking about the effects of the, the really practical effects of uh, theoretical and epistemological discussions on things like the state, state power, weak state, strong state. And, you know, you can imagine what you already know, how that conversation refracts backwards and forwards to Lebanon and between Iraq. So after that, and, you know, my MA is in the politics of the Arab world, uh, I should say also my BA is actually in theater, theater um, and film. And I worked in the film and television industry in Lebanon uh, after the end of the civil war in the mid to late 90s, which was also a period of uh, the state kind of being reconstituted in some ways, rearticulated, including through its uh, media apparatuses. Yeah. So. Yeah, so so I think my interest in the state has both intellectual, personal, and kind of political um, origins. That's it's fascinating, and I I should have maybe flagged up your your media work as well, which adds a a certain flair to the way that you write and the the way that you engage with with these topics and the the politics of difference. Um, before delving into some of these things in detail, I mean, one of the things that that strikes me about your work, um, not just your book, but your work generally, is this intersectionality that's at play here between not just the, the various disciplinary types of questions around power, around the state, around sovereignty, around sect, around sex, around um, all of these other questions around identity, but it's also it's it's deeply political and it's deeply personal, and that's something that that always strikes me when I read your work, Maya. And I, I wonder, given that you have got this lived experience of the state and of the quest for power, and given that you've got this experience of having worked on it be it with your, your media hat on or your scholarly hat on, how do you navigate this sort of interplay of the personal and the political and the intellectual? Uh, that's a good question. You know, I think sometimes it's important. So I think all of our work is personal. Yeah. We come to for personal reasons. Uh, even if it's something like, uh, oh, I think this subject will get me a job, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, that, that is a personal reason. We just don't often frame it that way. Uh, or, oh, you know, my parent uh, was a professor and that's how I sort of was socialized into this world. Those are personal reasons. Uh, so I think we all kind of come to our work, uh, you know, because of our own kind of personal histories. I do think it's important to be honest about that um, in, in writing, in public, not just uh, for the sort of, uh, 
you know, not just to be honest, but also to help when we train graduate students to not sort of pull the wool over their eyes and be like, oh, no, these are just purely intellectual topics. Uh, they are really not. And of course, you know, this is, I think, my grounding and my commitment both to ethnography as an anthropologist and uh, to a kind of feminist politics that acknowledges that um, the term personal is often a way to not talk about power relations or to uh, cleave certain parts of uh, intellectual debate off from the question of power relations. Uh, so that's kind of how I view this. Right. Okay. I think that's a that's a really interesting way of of looking at it, and it's it's something that you, of course, own up to, and perhaps own up to is the wrong way of putting it. Own, and you um, you position front and center in your work, and I think that, as you say, it's it's really important in in setting up what's to follow intellectually. Um, mm-hmm. It is a a complex symbiotic type of relationship, which is one of the reasons mm-hmm. why I thought it would be. Um, Important to ask you, given the the intersectionality of all of this, and mm-hmm. from that, Maya, I I wonder, given that the work that you're doing kind of straddles disciplines, and mm-hmm. your your MA, as you say, was in in Middle East, is in um, sorry, not Middle Eastern studies, but rather um, it was in Arab studies. Mm-hmm. Why did you yeah. decide to go down the anthropology route rather than the politics <laughs> route? Uh, you know, that is a, a question that my MA advisor, Michael Hudson, mm-hmm. also asked <laughs> And, you know, of course, Michael Hudson was a major scholar yeah. of the state in the Middle East. Of course. Uh, comparative politics. But to me, again, a lot of this goes back to my trip to Iraq and uh, what I saw as kind of what was missing in the debate on the state, which was very much the feeling of the state, how people actually live and experience the state, seemed to me a much more um, grounded way of thinking about the state. And I think it interested me. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, uh, I've always loved writing. Um, and I, I think that ethnography has a little more flexibility to it in terms of how you build intellectual arguments, how you build political arguments. Uh, so those, I guess, two reasons were, yeah, that's probably why I chose anthropology. I should say, you know, like I never had an intention to be an academic. <laughs> right. I okay. really thought. Um, uh, you know, this was not something that was really in my sort of purview about as a career. In my naivete, I thought, oh, you know, I'll go to get a PhD and then do what I really love, which is filmmaking and writing. Uh, and then, you know, obviously things change. And uh, I got totally swept up <laughs> yeah. and engaged and committed to the academy. Well, journalism's loss is certainly the academy's gain, and I'm I'm very very pleased that you got consumed in 
in everything that is happening because without it we wouldn't have your your wonderful work Maya. Um, I think there's a really interesting answer to that question there and it it reminds me a little bit of a of a broader debate that I've had with with friends and students that have studied in the Middle East and studied political science um, in sorry that have studied in America and that have studied political science in America and their approach to questions about the state and about international politics more broadly decenters that um, that discussion of agency that discussion of people and it strikes me maybe that's that's one of the things that comes out well it certainly does come out in your work but I wonder if that's one of the things that that prompted your your journey into anthropology rather than down the the political science route. Hmm. Uh, you know that that way that may well be. Um, I kind of think of it as a as a question of where you grant authority to a certain subject, mm-hmm. and uh, specifically a subject that is kind of has so much force in people's lives and it's kind of, um, you know, you can't really escape it when it comes to life, which is, which is the subject of the state. My interest in terms of uh, the authority of experience or the authority of evidence, uh, I wanted it to come from experience. And I think that is definitely, I, I don't know if I would call it uh, agency, but I would say that the authority in terms of who gets to talk about the state and in what ways should be decentered from the people who benefit from the state, let's yeah, say. Sure. Sure. And the other part of, of, of I think the conversation uh, for me personally as a scholar is that um, I think that the subject of uh, sexual difference in political science is, is quite different than how it's been framed in, in anthropology. And both of those things are very different to how it's been framed in uh, feminist studies. And I really didn't want to uh, my work to be about uh, or sort of subsumed by conversations on, on rights-based approaches to political difference or inequality, uh, nor did I want to uh, assume the veracity of some of the categories that we take for granted, like the law, like the state, like bureaucracy. But as you see, you know, in my in, in my book, I'm very invested in having a conversation with political scientists and political theorists because I think we really need to talk to each other. We yeah. really need to have conversations. Yeah, I think I think we do, and that is one of the the many many reasons why I was delighted when you agreed to come and uh, and speak at our conference, and why I thoroughly enjoyed everything that you had to say. Um, I want to touch on the book a little bit more shortly, Maya, if that's okay, please. But I I wonder you've mentioned you've mentioned your your trip to Iraq and the documentary that you made a couple of times now. So can you just tell people a little bit about what's going on there with that, please? What's it about? What's it called? What were you trying to do with it? And, and where can people see it? Sure. Um, well, like I said, before I started uh, graduate school, 
I worked in uh, the television and film industry uh, in in Lebanon for a few years. Uh, and then when I moved to the United States, I uh, went with sort of a group of comrades. We were five people. Uh, and we went to Iraq um, in July of 2003, so a few months after the illegal occupation and mm-hmm. invasion of Iraq. And the film is kind of structured uh, through the journey of uh, my friend and colleague Sinan Antoun back to Baghdad, back to Iraq, where he is from uh, and where he left from uh, during the sanctions regime. So that's sort of the structure of the film. We stayed for, uh, I think, a month in, in Iraq, in Baghdad mostly. And it, it was an interview-based uh, documentary. And I think that is where a lot of, you know, what influenced me greatly was really just how people talked about the state, how it shaped sort of their entire life trajectories and histories, uh, the state, and also the conversation about the state. And, you know, people are really the best theorists of their own lives. Uh, and that's something that I, um, you know, sort of uh, really understood in Iraq. And uh, so the film is called About Baghdad. It can be found, um, I think, you know, on Amazon and different sort of databases. But then after that, uh, after About Baghdad, I also worked on a film uh, about the war on terror which I was the assistant director and editor of, and where we traveled to, uh, I think, like 12 different countries. And Bassam Haddad was uh, my collaborator and the director among, you know, a great, amazing team. And there we also saw how the war on, the war on terror conversation itself was, uh, how it was being deployed and how mm-hmm. it was being deployed in the United States, Europe, and the Middle East itself. And then finally, in 2006, uh, I was in Beirut during the 2006 war, and I made a film uh, about the war. Um, and it was also based on, the, on people's experiences of war. Okay. Well, I will put some links to these uh, these films and shows in the show notes so people can mm-hmm. can find them in a slightly easier way. So let's go to to the um, to the book, Maya, please, because I think this okay. is this is the real substantive um, bit of scholarly work that that you've got, and it's wonderful, and it it needs to be discussed and it needs to be read by by people because I think it's absolutely fantastic. So the, the full title, I've, I've used the, the the shorter, catchier title. The full title is Sectarianism, Sovereignty, Secularism, and the State in Lebanon. And it's fascinating. It's a really, really rich, really excellent tome. Can you tell us a little bit what about about the main sort of thrust of it? What what's the main argument that you're making in in the book, please? <laughs> it's funny, right? Like that seems to be the hardest thing actually to uh, <laughs> describe sometimes. 
Yeah, it, uh, it is. And I can understand why in this case, because you're pulling at so many different threads that all fall broadly under the rubric of of of, of sovereign power and the state and and difference. That's kind of why I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm asking you this question. I, I want to know what the overarching theme is here. Uh, I think the, you know, the overarching theme is really how political difference is made and unmade and how it is a terrain of um, state power, management, religion, secularism, uh, and also a terrain of, of human experience. Uh, including experiences with state institutions like bureaucracy uh, or state archives, right? Or even, um, you know, kind of if you want to understand how the state functions, who better to talk to than civil employees, than state employees in working in public institutions, which the book also does. And then grounded within there is really sort of um, an argument that sexual difference and the making and unmaking and management and uh, deployment is a really critical component of uh, the state itself and of the experience of the state. And that those two things are are very, are, are impossible to disentangle, sexual and political difference. And I think in some ways, I hope the book, the book works at sort of multiple scales. So in terms of the debate on sectarianism, I hope it you know works at that scale of the debate on sectarianism, sectarianism in the Middle East uh, as an arena of power and as an arena of experience. And on a different scale, uh, I'm trying to make an argument about biopolitical management, sovereignty, um, and the relationship between religious difference, secular difference, and biopolitics itself. Mm-hmm. Of course, here, you know, when we think about biopolitics, sexuality becomes very, very uh, a critical component component of that conversation. And then, sort of at a at a third scale. Uh, the book really tries to think about how sexual difference itself is becoming, is increasingly a terrain of, of politics, uh, nationally, transnationally, and geopolitically. And you do all of this in such a persuasive manner, and yet central to it is a story of, of humanity. It struck me at all points of this, even when you're dealing with the the complex minutiae of of biopolitics in operation, it's it's about people and about difference and experience. It manages to circumvent some of the the criticisms of of other other approaches that use biopolitics centrally that sort of decenter human experience because it strikes me when i'm reading your your book and your work generally that's that's right at the heart of it um be it in this in the wonderful archival work that you've done or be it in the in the broader theorizing that you engage in it's that 
stories of experience, the experiences of difference that that are right at the heart of what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think in the in the sort of archival work here, what I'm also trying to do is show how sometimes our epistemological categories take on lives of their own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of, um, uh, they kind of act like, you know, like master signs that come to explain or seek or, or claim to explain uh, history or, uh, you know, daily life. And that sometimes if you displace that master sign and instead you look at actually the sort of the politics and the production of knowledge and you focus on the question of indeterminacy, yeah. it's a much approximate uh, reflection of how life actually is. I think, you know, everybody alive knows that life is, so messy and so <laughs> contradictory and so um, you know in many ways unexpected and non-sovereign we are not in control of our lives you know everyone alive sort of knows that um, and yet our theories of life are so really seek out a kind of coherence Yeah, and that became very interesting to me how is it that, you know, if we just think about your own life and, and how it's been lived and you and you live with that mess and incoherence, uh, what is this sort of desire to form stable, coherent theories about life? So mm-hmm. in the work on archives, this became important to me in thinking about sectarianism, uh, in thinking about the category of history or the archive, and even in terms of, and you know, there's a very clear sort of reference here to uh, Derrida and his work on the archive and his work on archive fever. And it's an attempt in which to say, well, the archive is not just this sort of theoretical metonym, it's a life world. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's at the center of geopolitics. It's actually, uh, you cannot think about archives without thinking about geopolitics. So, uh, as well as the politics of knowledge. So I think I'm, I'm very much um, interested in, in how and why theories about life, like, you know, biopolitics is a theory about life, theory about power, uh, how they express coherence when thinking about innately messy and incoherent like you know shared life society experience i think one of the the best examples of that messiness and the the lack of conceptual engagement with that messiness the the failure to capture it perhaps is is the concept of sovereignty right which is still for some bizarre reason imbued with this monoistic westphalian neo-barbarian understanding that is sort of hierarchical and unitary. And yet mm-hmm. the messiness that, that you've just alluded to is anything but monoistic, hierarchical, unitary. And that really comes to the fore in, in what you're doing here. 
Yeah, I mean, I think partly, uh, you know, I was drawn to this conversation on sovereignty and, and the question of coherence because of the very sort of, um, the way that it's talked about in relation to Lebanon, both intellectually, but also in terms of uh, activism, right? Political activism. Uh, as a as a as a as a thing that just has a certain definition, and you have to satisfy that definition to be a sovereign uh, state. And again, here um, in the work that I do, which is very much based in legal cases, legal anthropology, and archival anthropology, I try to show uh, and understand different ways of understanding sovereignty, like. Uh, a bureaucratic state or the feeling of sovereignty through violence. You know, what we mean by political violence itself um, needs to be greatly, I think, expanded and thought of creatively to account for all the different kinds of political difference that may be targeted through something like political violence. Uh, so it's kind of about the stories that we tell ourselves about life are much more less interesting than life itself much less complex than life itself yeah uh, and here i will say right like especially this became very clear to me uh on the question of sectarianism when in my work i kept finding all these religious conversion cases where people are um you know in this place called lebanon which is thought of as kind of a quintessential uh, place to study sectarianism, you have what you end up having is, is a lot of movement. And, you know, things aren't always what they seem. And I think that becomes very clear in the question uh, and the experience and the sort of regulation of religious conversion. Uh, and also what becomes clear is the fact that you can't really think about sectarian difference without taking into account the structures that produce sectarian difference. And the structures that produce sectarian difference are often grounded in sex, sexual difference. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's really valuable. And I think that's what you do really, really well is, is, show how intimately these these sets of structures are are linked but they're not linked accidentally this isn't just an accident of history it's uh, a product of of myriad forms of of power relations intersecting if you will um interacting with one another to impose mechanisms of control and to to regulate the the living of life the biopolitics of it all mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, I mean, when I started doing my research, I was not really interested in sexual difference at all. That's not what I thought I was going to do. I was what very were you going to do? Sorry. Just out of interest. <laughs> I was really interested just in sort of religious conversion and the right, conversation okay. on and the religious um, from, you know, and then like thinking about the sectarian within that framework of the secular and the religious. Uh, and then once I started doing my research, it became very clear that there was no way to study it without accounting for sex, without accounting for sexual difference. And I have to say, Simon, then I, I once I understood that, I kind of became 
really fascinated by this question of how is how is it that is something that is so obvious, so obvious if you just study, if you have any interest in, in sort of state structures, right? Yeah. How is it that is something that is so really just sort of staring you in the face, which is the grounding or the co-constitution between sectarian and sexual difference? How is it not at the heart of the conversation about mm-hmm. sectarianism or yeah. political sectarianism? So um, I became really fascinated. Like, how do we unsee things that are so obvious? <laughs> like, the state is doing something very loudly, right? And then in, when we study it, we kind of mute an entire critical component of state power, uh, and that gets into sort of an epistemological debate on uh, hierarchies of knowledge that map onto real-world power relations. On um, so, so that became really fascinating to me. Like, how do we academically unsee things that are so obvious in in life, in lived life, in the practice of the state? Do you have an answer to that? I mean, why is why is sex unseen in the context of this set of debates? Uh, you know, partly the answer is in my own, um, like it's reflected in my own journey of this because, you know, uh, I really resisted even thinking about sex because I was like, oh, then I'll just be thought of as a gender scholar, right? And mm-hmm. that's, I won't be taken, quote unquote, seriously, and I won't be having the kinds of conversations uh, that I want to be having, uh, and it'll be sidelined, and it will just become like you know a week on a syllabus kind of thing. Uh, and I think that that is a sad reality <laughs> of sort of the epistemological boundaries that we all make. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, the other reason uh, is also because I am, you know, I am a, I am a, a woman. And I think sometimes uh, because gender is often understood as sort of women's studies and things that women think about, you know, yeah. uh, I was resistant. Uh, you know, I also think that just sort of different fields, we just haven't done our intersectional work well enough. And this has to do, this does go back to, you know, the origins of political theory and the origins of social contract theory and how it's really structured how we think about politics, how we think about something, whatever, what people call the public sphere uh, and how we think about subjects like citizenship or non-citizenship that really go back to deeply um, racialized and gendered origin stories about critical theory. Yeah. Like things like social contract theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will say that I think it's been liberating for me to see or to understand that it takes a lot of work to unsee something obvious. But that's never an individual doing that work to unsee. It's a whole sort of apparatus of uh, epistemological 
work that precedes you, that is doing that work for you to unsee that knot of sexual and political difference. Yeah, I think that's that's really valuable, and it's something that I think we as scholars interested in particular types of questions have to have to make a concerted effort to to do to unsee things to uh to unlearn particular approaches which isn't easy it's not comfortable but it's really really important particularly in 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 these types of questions and as you say it's not something we can do on our own yeah, you know, I read a novel that really stayed with me. Uh, I don't know if you've read this novel called The City and the City. I haven't. Uh, I'm trying to remember the China. I want to say uh, Mayville. I can't remember the last name now. But the premise of the novel is that there are multiple cities existing within one city. Mm-hmm. And the protagonist, is is learning to see what has always been there which is the presence of these other cities within that one city uh and i and i really became and and you know the sort of one of the themes is that actually it's not that we that he's learning to see but that he's already learned to unsee right and that's Mm. sort of what he's what's starting to crumble is that edifice of unseeing, that ideology of unseeing. Um, and I, and I, I love that novel. And it, I think it has, you can think about it epistemologically, you can think about it in terms of sort of, um, again, the question of, of experience. And uh, you can definitely think about it in terms of things like class difference, racial difference, uh, and the the real work that it takes to unsee each other. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, this conversation's reminding me of the various debates that have been taking place around decolonization and the the need to unsee and unlearn what has been deeply embedded within s- political structures, social structures. Um, epistemic structures about about colonialism, about the colonial past, and I think whilst whilst obviously very different, the processes that you're alluding to are, are very similar. I think. So yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I agree. I mean, there's there's so much to to reflect on here, and um, <laughs> when when you were talking about about the the absence of of discussions of of sex in sectarianism i immediately thought of the absence of discussions of the state which seems Mm -hmm. incredible when you think about how central it is and everything that you've just been talking about maya emphasizes excuse me how important the state is and yet the state has also been largely absent from these discussions and from that efforts to understand the regulation, the manifestation, the marginalization of, of difference. And mm-hmm. it all speaks to um, the production of, of this wonderful, wonderful book that you've got. And I'm absolutely delighted that, that you wrote it. I should just say one, um, one retort is that 
you're asking an awful lot from your readers. You're asking them to, <laughs> uh, to to reflect on on deep theoretical, ontological, methodological processes, and then rich, challenging, um, empirical data as well. It's it's simultaneously an easy book to read and an incredibly challenging book to read. <laughs> but I, th- I think they're the best books, right? The best books are the, are the ones that I, stay with you and make you work. I wanted to try to write something that could be read by multiple readers. Yeah. So um, that that could be read also at sort of multiple scales. And also that it didn't feel alienating as you read it. You know, mm-hmm. like some books, like they almost have like an abusive relationship with the reader. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I think you've managed that. You've managed to to be inclusive, and um, and that is is wonderful and a political statement in and of itself, given the topic of the of the book. So, um, thank you, thank you for reading it, Maya. We've we've been talking for a long time now, and I realize we've not even mentioned the other wonderful thing that you are involved in, which is Jadalia. Um, I wonder if perhaps we can just just before we close, if you can just say a little bit about Jadalia and um, and and what Jadalia is all about and your involvement in it, please. Uh, sure. Uh, you know, I um, even before Jadalia, uh, this is there's a um, sort of critical mass of people that have been working together now for decades, uh, beginning with something called the Arab Studies Journal, which I was not part of, but. Um, then the films that I mentioned yeah. uh, were part of the collective. And then one iteration of it was Jadalia, which I co-founded um, in 2010. I was actually in Beirut doing my fieldwork research for my dissertation when um, we co-founded Jadalia. And it really kind of... Um, and, and basically the premise of it, right, the central premise, is that academic knowledge and the kind of expertise and the access and the privilege we have as academics to just sit down to to do research, you know, the privilege even of of being able to sit in a room and talking about ideas about research really should not be limited to the university. Yeah. So it's it's kind of a that brings together, and nor are academics the only people who produce knowledge, right, or produce theory. So it's really kind of a platform to uh, promote critical, uh, you know, deeply researched, critical, and um, sort of innovative knowledge production in and from the transnational Middle East. And what I learned from it personally, and I think you know, this does carry through with my book, in my book, and, and one of the ways that Jadalia really helped me was in learning how to write, how to write uh, and assume that the most intelligent reader is an academic reader, yeah. or that those are synonymous, or that the most interesting thinker on any given subject is, an, is another academic. So that was kind of the, the premise of Jadalia. It did the 
its launching kind of dovetailed with the uh, uprisings in the Middle East, um, which meant that it, it you know, became like a, a, a critical site for thinking about that Muda's sort of 10 years, 11, 12 years. And um, it's now a, a very sort of, it's like a juggernaut. It's become very <laughs> yeah. large. <laughs> you know, the team has really grown exponentially. But I think at its heart is friendship and trust, which yeah. is kind of, you know, a really, I don't think we talk about trust and friendship as central to politics and working together on a, on a project, but it absolutely, they, they absolutely are. Uh, and I think that's kind of what keeps Jabalia running because it's totally non, you know, I mean, it's a group of people doing this on top of the two or three jobs they already do. Mm. Well, as you say, it has become a juggernaut and an incredibly valuable, um, incredibly popular juggernaut at that, which is doing a, a great deal of good in the world um, for, for academics, st- scholars, students, and people generally interested in, in these debates and questions that you're you're producing and disseminating knowledge on. So thank you. Maya, for, for all of your efforts on that and to you and your, your wonderful team. It really is a, a wonderful thing that you've done. But I think, sadly, we've been talking for a very long time now. This could well be the longest podcast I've ever recorded, but it's also been one of the most fun, one of the richest and uh, most provocative intellectually. So, Maya, a huge thank you for your time just now. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, as I always do uh, enjoy engaging with you so um thank you so much it's been a real pleasure thanks simon i think this just shows you know we need to hang out more so that it doesn't <laughs> all come out <laughs> just talk. i like that idea that sounds wonderful thank you so much maya okay bye-bye simon a huge thank you to maya for her time just now you can find her on twitter at maya mcdashi that's at maya mcdashi do check out her wonderful book, Sextarianism, published by Stanford last year. And, as always, a huge thank you to you for listening. As always, take care. Until next time.